0: Today we continue our series entitled, I And. This series gets its name from the passage in John chapter 10, verse 30, where Jesus says, I and the Father are one. The first two weeks of this series, the I has been from the perspective of Christ. Today, however, the perspective shifts. Today, the perspective becomes I, as in each of us individually, What is my interaction with the triune God? How do I interact with the Father? How do I relate to the Son? How do I interact with the Holy Spirit? I am the triune Master of heaven and earth. What is the connection there? We will find out that it's so important to understand our position when it comes to understanding who we are in God, for it changes everything. This is highlighted in Mark chapter 10, verse 17. Jesus had just gotten done preaching an excellent sermon. The little children had just come to him. And as Jesus started on his way to move to his next destination, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And we have recorded in scripture for us one of the most tragic and misguided questions of all time. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Inheritance is not a matter of doing. It is a matter of being. Being in the right family. No matter how hard you work, no matter what you do, you cannot earn an inheritance. An inheritance has nothing to do with doing work. It has everything to do with being being in the right family. And those of us who are in the family of God have quite an inheritance to look forward to. In fact, the Apostle Paul in the book of Ephesians chapter 1 verses 13 and 14 writes these words, and you were also included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. When you heard the message of the truth, when you heard the gospel and believed, that's when everything changed. We all know what the gospel message is. The gospel message is simple. God the Father, who is completely perfect, sent God the Son to live a perfect and sinless life. God the Son, known as Jesus, died on the cross on our behalf even though our sin warrants death and separation from God. God the Spirit raised Jesus from the dead and when we believe that Jesus and his perfect righteousness traded places with us and our imperfect sinfulness and we have the inverted aspect of forgiveness the one who had no sin becoming sin for us, so that we who are sinful indeed might become the righteousness of God, we understand the gospel. And when we believe this, and notice how the word believed is highlighted. This is the word pastuo, the word that gets translated to have faith or to believe or to trust, and always carries with it the idea of demonstrating that faith, trust, belief, in terms of loving obedience. This is the same word that Derek highlighted from John chapter 10 and that I focused on extensively last week. And here it is again. When you believed, at that moment in time, you were marked with a deposit, the promised Holy Spirit, guaranteeing our inheritance. Same chapter, Ephesians 1, verses 18 and 19 declares through the Apostle Paul, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance and his holy people and his incomparably great power for us who believe. We have an inheritance, and that inheritance includes hope. The thing for which we hope is our resurrection body. We, who are in Christ, will receive a body like Christ's, Just as after the resurrection, Jesus received a body that was imperishable and immortal, so too will we eventually receive a body that is free from the shackles of age and sickness and death. This is part of the glorious inheritance for which we hope. And that inheritance is going to be spectacular. The inheritance is heaven. We look forward to heaven for we will have a physical interaction with God Almighty everlasting. I can't wait to play tennis with Andre Agassi in heaven, to write sonnets with William Shakespeare, to sit with Luke, the doctor, and interview with him all those he interviewed getting ready to write his gospel and his book of Acts, to meet every biblical character who's ever been recorded, and to talk with Christians who lived at different times and in different societies for me and find out what it was like to be a Christian for them. Oh, I long for my time in heaven. And until I get there, I'm filled with a power, an incomparably great power for us who believe. Pestuo. The power for us who believe is the Holy Spirit. For we have not been given a spirit of timidity, but a spirit of power, love, and self-discipline. The Holy Spirit gives us the power To be saved, fills us with love to share that message of salvation with the world around us, and instills within us a self discipline that grows ever more increasingly Christ like as we rely on Him. Oh, yes, the inheritance that we have will be remarkable. Inheritance is a good and glorious thing. But don't ever forget, inheritance has nothing to do with uh, doing, it has everything to do with being in the right family. So how do you get in the right family? Well, Jesus answered just this question in Matthew chapter 12, verses 47 through 50. Someone told Jesus, Your mother and brothers are standing outside wanting to speak to you. He replied to them, Who are my mother and brothers? And then pointing to his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and my sister and my mother. Oh, this is fantastic. Whoever does the will of the Heavenly Father, it's almost one of the reasons that we go around with T-shirts that say, Father willed, Christ compelled, and Spirit led, because we understand getting into the family of God means being in the will of God. The will of God is important because it makes us who we are, the family of God. Remember, inheritance is not a matter of doing, it's a matter of being, being in the right family. Being in the right family means being in the will of God, and the will of God is something that we can discern. Romans chapter 12, verse 2 says, Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is. If you want to learn what God's directive will is for your life, renew your mind so that you can grow in your knowledge of who he is so that you can figure his will out. But other times, God's will is remarkably clear and precise. In fact, 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 declares that it's God's will that you should be sanctified. God wants you to be sanctified. You're sanctified when you believe the gospel and are marked with the Holy Spirit. You collaborate with the Holy Spirit to grow in sanctification. 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 18 says, Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Can you be thankful in all circumstances, even if your circumstances are crummy? Yes, of course you can, because you know the hope to which God has called you. You know the inheritance that is waiting for you, and you can give thanks even in the most tragic and dire of human circumstances. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 15 and 16 declares, It's God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. You want to do God's will? Silence the foolish talk of ignorant people. Silence the ignorant talk of foolish people by doing good. By doing good, we understand that as Christians living in God's will, we can show the world what God wants of them. But the focus must be on Christ. The focus must be on Christ. And we understand that even though we want the will of the Father and we want to be led by the Spirit, we are compelled by the love of Christ. For we are Christians, and Christ is the entry point to this interaction with the triune God. We must be connected to Christ. Well, fortunately, Christ tells us exactly how we can be connected with him in John chapter 15, verses 4 and 5. Jesus says, Abide in me as I also abide in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself, it must abide in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you abide in me, and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. We must abide in Christ. The word abide means to remain or to dwell. We must remain in who Jesus is. We must dwell in his presence as he dwells in us. For apart from him, we can do nothing. But when we abide in him, we can do great, great things. In fact, the primary way by which we abide in Christ is by following Christ to the cross. That's what Galatians chapter 2 verse 20 tells us. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Christ lives in us. Christ abides in us, and we abide in him as we take up our cross daily. Just as Jesus instructed us to do in Luke chapter 9, verse 22, whoever would come after me must take up his cross daily. And follow me. We have to take up our cross daily. So that means every single morning I wake up and I need to kill myself. I need to kill my selfish desires. I need to die to sin in order to live for Christ. This is the power of Christ. Now this is how we develop a personal relationship with God. We say, God, even though I want to sin, what I want even more than sin is your will. And so what I'm going to do is follow your lead, and I am going to die on the cross. I'm going to metaphorically take up my cross, die to sin, die to self, so that I may better live for you. This is how we develop a relationship with Christ. But there are three key aspects to a relationship with God. The three key aspects to our relationship with God are these. How we understand our position, our motivation, and our resultant behavior. How we understand our position with God is all about using our head, using our mind to believe who God is, who we are, and how we stand positionally with him. It starts with our head. But it also includes our motivation. What drives us? What is the motivational force for why we do what we do? This is our heart. And it always, rele- it always leads to resultant behavior, our hands. Head, heart, hands. This is what we're all about here at GCC, for we know that the three keys to a relationship with God involve head, heart, and hands, and that's why we press this issue so much But, as we develop our head, and our hearts, and our hands, we understand that you can develop the position you have with God, you can understand the motivation for what drives you, and you can see the resultant behavior. In fact, today, I'm going to show you four different positions, all driven by four different motivations that lead to four different results. Let's start with the very first position, and this is the position of being an enemy of God. All the enemies of God are motivated by hostility, and the result of that hostility is disobedience. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2 tells us, You were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. The enemy of God is anyone who is not a follower of God. And all of us at one time were enemies of God. And all of us at one time were disobedient because we were hostile to God. Do you remember your B.C. days? Your before Christ days? I do. And I'm ashamed of them. I used to be a stealer. That's right. I would steal. I worked for a movie theater, and before they had video cameras on every cash register, I would steal money from the register. Every Tuesday night, I was the ticket taker, and what I would do is every time two people came up to buy a ticket, every time a couple came, I would charge them for two tickets, but I would only print out one ticket. And then they would give me the money for two, I would tear the ticket in half, give them each a stub so they could get into the theater, and then... I would make a tally. At the end of the night, I would count up my tallies, multiply it by the price of a ticket, and that's how much money I would pocket. And I felt totally justified because I was hostile. I was hostile to God. I wanted nothing to do with God. I was an atheist who did not believe in him, and I was satisfied being a stealer. Oh, I was an enemy of God, motivated by hostility, and the resultant behavior was disobedience. But then my life changed. I finally met a man who was smarter than I am and who was willing to take the time to listen to all my complaints, to answer all of my questions, and to knock down all of my objections to Christianity. And I became a believer. Now, when you're a believer, you move from being an enemy of God to being a servant of God or a slave of God. In fact, the Greek word doulos, is variously translated as servant or as slave. In fact, the Apostle Paul in the book of Romans can say that he is a servant, doulas, of Jesus Christ, and then a few chapters later he can say, I'm a slave to righteousness, doulas to righteousness. The word doulas gets translated slave or servant, and these two words are completely interchangeable within the New Testament. And so if you see yourself as a servant of God, your motivation is obviously going to be self-preservation. And if you are motivated by self-preservation, your resultant behavior will be fearful obedience. This is always the beginning. In fact, Jesus, in Luke chapter 12, verse 5, says, I'll show you whom you should fear. Fear him who, after your body has been killed, has the authority to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, Fear Him. Fear is an appropriate way to bring about obedience. In fact, the Bible tells us that fear is good in lots of regards. Psalm 128 verse one says, "Blessed are all those who fear the Lord and walk in obedience to Him. When you fear Him, you obey." Proverbs 1:7 says, "The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge." And Proverbs 9:10 says, "The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom." We want to grow in knowledge, and we want to grow in wisdom, and we want to be blessed by walking in obedience, and so fear is very, very appropriate. Now, the fear of the Lord includes a reverence and awe considering God's nature and actions. When you understand who God is, his nature, the fact that he's all-knowing, all-powerful, all-good, eternal, necessary, and triune, and you recognize his actions include creating all of us and saving us, there is an awe and a reverence that comes into your mind. And this leads to concern about punishment because you recognize God is perfect, I am not. God is holy, I am not. And because I am not, I'm worried about the punishment that is completely deserved, that I owe. And that leads to our obedience. Oh, sure, I'll obey you, God. Just don't send me to hell. Oh, sure, I'll do what you want. I just want to preserve myself. How many Christians in this world are obsessed with punishment? How many Christians do you know that are worried about going to hell? They actually fear this sort of thing. They haven't ever moved beyond fear, and they are afraid of God. And every time they sin, they think, oh, no, God might get me. There's a reverence and awe to God's perfection and a recognition of our position as a servant and how they are not the same that comes with that. But it's this self-motivation for preservation that leads to our fearful obedience Now, look, it's not bad to be a servant. In fact, the New Testament authors call themselves servants all the time. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ. James, a servant of God. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle. Jude, a servant of Jesus. These men listed are the half-brothers of Jesus, the apostles of the early church, all writers of Scripture, and yet each and every one of them still considers himself a servant to God. It is good to view yourself as a servant, but you shouldn't merely view yourself as a servant. You should instead view yourself as something far more than just a servant. It's good to continue to understand that you are a servant of God Almighty, but if you only view your position as a servant, you'll never grow in the Christ-likeness that He wants for you. So, you must recognize that the second position of being a Christian, once you've moved from enemy to servant, you can move from servant to friend. You can be a friend of God. And your motivation as a friend of God is responsibility. And your resultant behavior is obligatory obedience. John 15 verses 14 and 15 records Jesus saying, I call you, you are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant doesn't know his master's business. Instead, I've called you friends. For everything I learned from my father, I have made known to you. It's right for us to view ourselves as servants, and it's right for us to view Jesus as master. But Jesus does not look at us and say, you're merely a servant, A servant doesn't know his master's business, but Jesus has revealed all of the information of God's plan to us. He's made it known to us. In fact, Scripture continues. John 17, verses 25 and 6 says, Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you, and they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them, and that I myself may be in them. Jesus makes the plan known. Ephesians chapter three, verses four and five says, in reading this, you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to people in other generations as it has now been made known and been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. God is making known the plan and the plan includes how we live. 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 1 and 2 says, As for other matters, brethren and sisters, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. Now we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more, for you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Holy Spirit. Yes, the authority of the Holy Spirit. Notice how Jesus can call us friend because we know the master's plan, and then notice how the motivation becomes responsibility. Here, Paul is saying, you know the instructions we gave you based on the authority of the Holy Spirit. You know how you should live in order to please God, as in fact you're already living that way, but do it more and more. With great friendship comes great responsibility. That is what we're talking about. Responsibility. If you are a friend of God and you are a friend of God, you are a friend of the Lord Jesus if you know the plan the Father has. If you have the Holy Spirit, it has been revealed to you and Jesus calls you friend. And if you are a friend, you are motivated by responsibility. Jesus died for me. The least I can do is live for him. So I'll follow the instructions and I'll have this obedience, but the obedience is now obligatory obedience. So the servant is motivated by hostility and has disobedience. Or the enemy is motivated by hostility and has disobedience. The servant, rather, is motivated by self-preservation and has a fearful obedience. The friend is motivated by responsibility and has obligatory obedience. But this is still not the position God wants us to embrace, Yes, we're all servants, and yes, Jesus calls us all friends, but he wants us to recognize our position as co-heir. A co-heir is motivated by freedom, and the result is loving obedience. Romans chapter 8, verses 16 and 17 says, "...the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we're God's children." Now, if we are God's children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ." Being a co-heir is so important. You know what a co-heir is, don't you? It's someone who is right there alongside the heir. The heir to the estate gets everything. The co-heir is like his brother. He also gets everything. But when we understand that we are a co-heir, we're motivated by freedom. We're free we can use our freedom to avoid sin, not a freedom to indulge in sin, and the result is loving obedience. In fact, the Bible tells us in Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5, but when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. We have been adopted as sons and daughters of God Almighty. The very next verses say, because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. Since you are a child, God has also made you an heir. And because we are part of the family of God, because we have been adopted by God, we now get to live out of a freedom, and this freedom is so, so important. The freedom out of which we get to live is glorious. Romans 8, 14, and 15 declares, for those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. It continues on. The very next two verses, 16 and 17. The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are God's children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in His sufferings, in order that we may also share in His glory. I love being a co heir with Christ. It was very difficult for me to embrace my co heir status long ago, early in my Christ like journey. I couldn't get past the fact that I deserved to go to hell, and so I lived out of fearful obedience, and I only saw myself as a servant. But then I realized God wants to view me as his friend because he's revealed all the plan to me. And so I started living out of responsibility. Well, I have a responsibility as a preacher to preach really good sermons and to fight false doctrine. And I wasn't living the way God wanted me to live fully. I wasn't embracing the freedom that I have. But when I realized that I am a co-heir with God, that I have the Spirit of God within me, and the Spirit testifies that I am one of God's children, and if I'm a child of God, I'm an heir, an heir of God and a co-heir with Christ, that changed everything. And now, when I obey, my obedience is out of love and nothing else. Galatians 5.13 says, You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. First Peter 2.16 says, Live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. As Christians, we're free. We can do all sorts of things, including sin. But just because we're free, doesn't mean that we're free to sin. Understand that freedom means that you're free not to sin. And when you're free not to sin, everything about your obedience changes. Your whole obedience changes. I no longer preach sermons out of obligation or fear. I preach them out of love. And if I preach a really bad sermon, that's okay. I'll try harder next week. I'm not doing it because I'm afraid and I'm not doing it because I have this obligation that I have to fulfill. I'm doing it because I love you. I love God, and I love His Word, and I love sharing His Word. Because I'm a co-heir. Inheritance has nothing to do with being. It has nothing to do with doing. It has everything to do with being, being in the right family. One of the most famous heirs in the entire world is an heiress. Her name is Paris Hilton. You maybe remember Paris Hilton because in her wild, younger days, she had a TV show and she was very popular, and she would go around and she would live in some uh, disobedience. Imagine Paris Hilton showing up to any Hilton hotel anywhere in the world and splashing about in the fountain. Now, the manager might come by and say, "Um, "'Excuse me, you need to get out of the fountain.'" And Paris might say, "'Why? It's my fountain.'" And then when he realizes, this is Paris Hilton, heiress to the entire Hilton fortune, he would probably back off right away. But even if he were to say, it's not your hotel yet, she would say, but it will be because I am the heiress. Do you want to keep your job? And out of this sense of, I'm part of the right family, I can do whatever I want, She maybe didn't live the right way, but as she grew and matured, now Paris is one of the great hotel managers in the entire world, and she does a really good job, and she wants to be faithful to the Hilton name. This is how it should go in our Christian life. Freedom of being a co-heir, we have no need to earn it. It's already ours. If you understand that you are a co heir with God, you don't need to earn his love, it's already ours. If you understand that you're a co heir with Christ, you don't need to earn your resurrection, it's already yours. If you understand positionally that you are a co heir with Christ, you don't need to earn anything, for everything is already yours. Picture it visually the servant lives out of fearful obedience. But there's still obedience. But that's not what God wants. That's how it starts in our Christian life. But it should progress to us understanding that we are a friend of God. Obligatory obedience. Now notice how both the servant and the friend obey, but one obeys out of fear and one obeys out of obligation. God doesn't want you to stay a servant. He wants you to become a friend. But God doesn't want you to stay just a friend. He wants you to embrace your position and identity as co-heir. For a co-heir still obeys, but now out of love. A servant, a friend, and a co-heir all obey God. One is motivated by fear, and one is motivated by obligation, and one is motivated by love and freedom. Don't spend your Christian life in fear. Don't spend your Christian life in obligation. Spend your Christian life in loving freedom Because we have to understand that inheritance is not a matter of doing, it's a matter of being, being in the right family. Being in the right family is everything. And so I want you to embrace your status as co-heir. I want you to understand that you can be free from fear-based obedience. In fact, the Bible says we should not base our obedience on fear. 1 John chapter 4, verses 16 and 17 says, God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. This is how love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Christ. If you want to be confident on the day of judgment, know that we are like Christ. We are co-heirs with Christ, which means we can be completely confident on the day of judgment. The very next verse, verse 18 says, there is no fear in love. But perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. Fear has nothing to do with punish, has nothing to do with love. Love has nothing to do with fear because fear has everything to do with punishment. There is no fear of punishment that I have. In fact, I have total and complete 100% confidence that on the day of judgment, there will be no punishment coming for me because Jesus already took my punishment. That's what the gospel says. If you don't believe this, you don't believe the promise of God. I have no fear of punishment because I know for certain that Jesus took all of my punishment. We need to be perfect in love, not in fear. I used to think that it was good enough for me just to be afraid. And that's because the Bible does say fear is important. Remember, Proverbs 1 7 says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, and Proverbs 9 10 says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. But that's just it the beginning, it's not the end. The fear of the Lord includes reverence and awe, considering God's nature and actions, which leads to concern about punishment. And when you're concerned about punishment, that leads to fearful obedience. But imagine moving beyond fear and living in love. It would look similar, but also strikingly different. Here's how love of the Lord comes in. The love of the Lord still includes reverence and awe concerning God's nature and actions, which leads to embracing our status as co-heir and freedom, which leads to loving obedience. Notice the similarity between love and fear. Fear has reverence and awe considering God's position or God's actions and nature. The love of the Lord has reverence and awe considering God's nature and actions The fear of the Lord leads to concern about punishment, which leads to fearful obedience. The love of the Lord leads to embracing our co-heir status and to freedom, which leads to loving obedience. Don't obey just to avoid going to hell. If you obey God just to avoid going to hell, you do not embrace that John 10, 10 abundant life that he has for you. Stop obeying because you're afraid of punishment. Jesus took your punishment. Stop obeying because you think you have an obligation to God. You have more than an obligation to God. As a co-heir, it's already yours. Now you can obey out of freedom and love. Inheritance is not a matter of doing. It is a matter of being. Being in the right family. Matthew 12, 50 says, here's how you get in the right family. Whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Father willed. Second Corinthians 5:14 declares, For Christ's love compels us. Christ-compelled. Galatians 5.25 says, Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Spirit Spirit-led. The reason we are all about being Father-willed, Christ-compelled, and Spirit-led here at GCC is because we want to have the right relationship with God. We want to understand the right position. We want to understand the right motivation. And we want to have the right results. Never ever forget you are an adopted child of the father you are a co-heir with christ and you are a dwelling place of the holy spirit and if you live your life uncertain that you are a co-heir with christ an adopted child of the father and a dwelling place of the holy spirit you might live out of obligation and that still means you might obey and if you don't understand that you are an adopted child of the Father, a co wearer with Christ, and a dwelling place of the Holy Spirit, you might be living in fear of punishment. And that could still lead to obedience, and you still have obedience. But if you would just embrace your identity, it would lead to freedom. It would lead to loving obedience, and it would change your life. You are an adopted child of the Father. You are a co-heir with Christ. You are a dwelling place of the Holy Spirit if you believe. Would you stand with me and pray this morning? Dear Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, Holy Spirit, thank you so much for moving me from being an enemy of yours, motivated by hostility and living in disobedience, to hearing the gospel And then I was able to pursue, to believe in you. And I understood that now I was a servant, motivated by self-preservation. I had fearful obedience, and that's a good beginning. But then I learned that you don't call me servant, you call me friend, because you revealed all the plan to me. And I lived out of obligation. But God, thank you so much for letting me know that I have been adopted by you, Father that I'm a co-heir alongside you, Lord Jesus, and that I'm a dwelling place for you, Holy Spirit, so that I can be Father-willed, Christ-compelled, and Spirit-led. And now I have zero fear of punishment. I'm able to live out of freedom, and I'm able to obey out of love. God, it is my prayer that the eyes of all the hearts of every Christian listening to me would be able to say, I and the Father have a relationship like this. I'm his adopted son. I and Christ have a relationship like this. I'm a co-heir with him. I and the Spirit have a relationship like this. I'm a dwelling place for the Spirit, led by the Spirit. God, if we can understand our position as adopted children, as co-heirs, as Spirit-led dwelling places for the Holy Spirit of God, it'll change everything about us. God, we love you. We place our faith in you. We believe you. We trust you. We obey you. We have pistuo for you. But please don't just take our word for it. See it in how we understand ourselves and live out of that understanding. This we pray in your name. Amen.